Mark My Words shares Mark Homer's contrarian views on investing, business, finance, economics, and all things money. Mark interviews the world's most successful business, finance, and money experts, as well as imparting his knowledge in a factual, direct, and no-nonsense manner. Welcome to Mark My Words, and here is your host, Mark Homer. Hello, this is Mark Homer, and welcome to Mark My Words. I've got Shaz Nawaz here, who is a, an accountant in Peterborough. He's got a, a load of knowledge. Um, he's got properties himself. Uh, he, he likes a lot of the stuff that we like. Uh, he's into cars. He's into watches. Um, and uh, and he's specifically quite good at, at, at reducing your tax liability and, and, and focusing that specifically around property investments. So he's doing developments himself. Uh, he's taking um, commercial buildings and converting them into residential. Understands buy to let. Um, so he's a, he's a perfect guest for, for the podcast. So Shaz, welcome. Welcome to my podcast. Thank you very much for having me here, Mark. Okay, Shaz, so you're, you're, a, you're an accountant. You've got a lot of experience. I understand you're also on the political scene here in Peterborough as well. Tell us a little bit about that. That's correct. Uh, so I've uh, always been interested in politics. And uh, a few years ago, one of our local ward councillors, who was my head teacher at uh, primary school, encouraged me to come along and uh, get involved. And before you know it, I'll put my name forward now, and there's a local election happening on the 17th of August, and uh, I'll be partaking in that as a candidate. Brilliant, so you're, you're effectively a candidate to become a local councillor, so you, you could be making some of the political decisions around the area. Absolutely, and I'm looking forward to it. Let's hope you can uh, get the planning department to be really receptive to all our uh, planning applications and so we can build more and convert more properties and, uh, and, and give Peterborough the housing stock that it needs. Well, I'll definitely be pushing to ensure that uh, the planning department becomes more efficient and things are done quicker and effectively. Great. That's, all, that's exactly what we all want. Okay, so we're here today to talk primarily about tax. That's your, uh, your sort of main passion, main profession. Um, lots of changes over the last few years. We've been talking about them, you know, and, and ways around or ways to deal with uh, the uh, the tax changes that, that we've been confronted with. So first of all, we know about the ability to offset mortgage interest being reduced for many individuals. Um, wear and tear allowance has also been removed. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and um, some possible solutions to it? Absolutely. So wear and tear was a very good allowance. If you bought a property and it was furnished, so you provided some furniture to your tenants, you would uh, be able to claim 10% as an expense from your annual rental, excluding any sunk costs like water rates and council tax. HMRC have become rather savvy to this and uh, they've withdrawn this particular tax relief and they've replaced it with something called replacement allowance, excuse the pun. Uh, and this is where if you replace a like-for-like -like item, you can claim that as an expenditure. So by way of example, if you had a washing machine and that broke down and you replaced it with a washing machine and a dryer, you can only claim the cost for a washing machine. You can't claim the dryer. So you have to go back to wherever you buy your goods from, find out how much a standalone washing machine would cost and only claim that part. So it's very important, Mark, that people keep good records. So 
that's all about keeping all the receipts from from all the purchases, isn't it? Um, going right back. Um, when the wear and tear allowance was around, I mean, it, it was pretty good. Um, you just take the ten percent of the rent and knock that off every year for basically re replacing and renewing the the furniture. Uh, you know, and all, all those sort of white goods in in the specifically HMO properties because you couldn't do it with single lets because they were unfurnished. Um, if, if a single let was furnished, you could, but by and large, most most investors would only furnish the HMO properties. But it's quite interesting because back then, effectively, you weren't incentivized to spend more on furniture because it didn't matter what you spent on the furniture. But now you you will be able to claim the cost of replacing furniture or replacing, you know, a washing machine or a a dryer if it's there already. Um, or a dishwasher or, or anything like that. So maybe your strategy needs to change a little bit in that um, when you're going and you're choosing uh, elements for, for your property, maybe now you'll you'll buy better quality stuff that lasts longer because you'll be able to claim the full cost. Whereas previously, you may have bought the cheapest item possible because it didn't matter how much you spent, you still got the same tax relief. Um, so um, that's, that's, you know, something to... To, to be aware of and obviously now you've got to keep all the receipts for it and then and then claim them um, interestingly though I remember a time when I first came into this this sort of buy to let HMO world and, and actually the wear and tear allowance didn't even exist uh, it was renewal so a little bit like often happens the, the revenue have come along or the Bank of England or whoever it is behind all this stuff because you never really know you everyone just blames it on George Osborne but there's often someone behind it um, they've introduced something not necessarily understood the consequences of it and of it and then back paddle back pedaled some years later uh, and i suspect they're going to be doing a little bit more of that with uh, some of the other things that they've introduced well that and also uh, the government's role to some extent is to influence attitudes and behaviors so if they're encouraging a particular sector to do something they'll offer reliefs and allowances so the government likes, at the moment, likes people to have cars which are friendly to the environment. Oh, what, diesel cars? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly those ones. <laughs> are they still encouraging those, Shaz? No. Are they but, not? But back in but the they day, were. back in the day, somebody thought that was a good idea, you see. Tony Blair told me to go and buy a diesel, I remember it. And that's why I did, I listened and I did it. Well, Tony Blair said quite a few things in the past, didn't he, which have come back to haunt us. <laughs> but uh, the government incentivizes us to do certain things, and then once they are happy that that particular thing uh, is doing what it was supposed to do, they'll then withdraw those reliefs or bring something else in to, again, try and change our attitudes and behaviours. So it's like a cat and mouse game where you've got to try and stay ahead of the government where you can. So one of the major changes which we've discussed previously that the CAT has introduced is this inability to offset all the mortgage interest. Lots of people are going into limited companies. Um, you use incorporation relief like some other accountants, um, but you've got a slightly different spin on it. Tell us how, um, you know, how you can utilise incorporation relief to transfer portfolios into limited companies. That's a good question, Mark. The first thing to bear in mind is when there's a, a topical subject out there, what I find is most people in a particular sector, in this case the property sector, tend to jump on the bandwagon. So it's important to crunch the numbers 
to establish whether incorporation is right for you or not. I've, I've spoken to lots of small property investors with a portfolio of say five or six properties. They don't have any other income and incorporating isn't the best thing for them to do. However, they've gone out there onto Google or onto a course or they've spoken to somebody in the pub and they think incorporating is the best thing for them to do. So it's important to work out the numbers to see if it benefits you or not. So specifically people with small portfolios or maybe portfolios that aren't leveraged, not much debt against them. So therefore they haven't got that much interest to offset anyway. Or maybe, um, yeah, like you say, people who haven't got much other income. So, so this right. doesn't affect them that much. Absolutely. So it doesn't affect them much. But people with larger portfolios, and I don't think I should put a number to the number of properties. You've but got to work it out, haven't you? It's complicated. Absolutely. With larger portfolios or other income, uh, so somebody who has a £60,000 salary and has a substantial property portfolio, for them it would be beneficial to perhaps consider incorporating. Now, if you're, a, if you're solely own all the properties in your own name and you're looking to incorporate, then you've got particular challenges because you're going to have to pay capital gains tax, possibly SDLT, and your finance costs will increase because generally speaking, when you go to a lender and you're saying, oh, I've got X number of properties in a limited company or even one property in a limited company, the costs are higher in terms of finance than they would be in your sole name or a partnership. However, if you're a, if you're a partnership or if you're an LLP, then you don't have to pay stamp duty if you incorporate. So you can claim section 162 incorporation relief, you won't have to pay capital gains tax, you won't have to pay the SDLT. And the real beauty is this, Mark, if you bought your properties, let's say 10 years ago, and you, you paid 100,000 each for them and you've got 10 properties, when you're incorporating, the base cost of those properties increases. So a million pound property portfolio purchased 10 years ago if it's worth three million now, when you incorporate, the value of your portfolio for tax purposes is three million. If you sell that, say in two years time, then for 3.6 million, so you'll only be paying tax on the 600,000 pounds and you won't be paying capital gains tax, you'll be paying corporation tax. Yeah, so that's good. So you're effectively increasing the base cost of the properties. Um, when they go into the limited company so that when you sell them eventually out of the limited company or transfer them out you're going to have much less uh, corporation to ta uh, tax to pay on that on that capital gain so that's that's interesting absolutely and I think that's probably one of the biggest advantages which most people miss we and don't even talk about it and if you're at a particular age where you're looking to gift everything to your children or a loved one or to a third party, then you could set up a trust when you incorporate and the trust owns the shares in the new company and then we can ring fence and mitigate for inheritance tax purposes. But uh, you and I could do a separate podcast on that, I guess, one day. Yeah, indeed, I'm sure it would uh, it would stretch to a whole hour that would. These things can be so nuanced and detailed and, you know, there's so many twists and turns with them. Um, I. I used to think that they, or they used to say that they were trying to simplify tax, but since I've been in business, it, it, maybe it's because I understand more of it, but it just seems to get more and more complicated. Are you, have you found that? 
Absolutely. So uh, the government has a tax simplification department, but <laughs> not very good, is it? Just like most other departments, I'm afraid to say. This is why they need people like you and me to become politicians, uh, Mark, so we can uh, change things very quickly and efficiently. But I suspect if the tax simplification department was super efficient, your business might not be quite as good. I'm sure there will be other things which come up which we can assist people with because no matter how much information you give somebody, uh, they still need support and assistance. Of course to do. It's so complicated. Absolutely. Okay, so something else we've touched upon in our conversations is Form 17 and the ability to split income between often man and wife, but as you pointed out, it could be between you know different other parties, other entities. T tell us how that works and how you can utilise Form 17. So if you've got income and you've got somebody else who works with you or assists you or is you want to pay them and you can use Form 17 to declare to HMRC that some of the income is going to them so that they pay the tax. So you can still own the capital element, they only own the income element. But it's important to note that the income has to go to them and it can't just be a paper exercise. Having spoken to so many different uh, accountants, tax advisors and barristers and even QCs, there's a mixed opinion, generally speaking, Mark, that if you own a property, you can create a deed of trust and give somebody else a share in that property without advising your mortgage company. And I'm not too sure whether you can or you can't do that. And from the general opinion I've had, most of the switched on barristers have said to me, it would be sensible to ensure that you advise your mortgage company. Now, of course, if you do that, they may ask you to refinance, especially if they've given you a very keen in interest rate a number of years ago. So I've taken it upon myself to engage a well-known barrister to give me an opinion, which has cost me quite a few thousand pounds. And because I like you, Mark, I'll be sharing that opinion with you and hopefully you can share it with your audience so that we have some clarity. Now, an opinion is exactly that. That's what that particular person thinks. But if you have a str strong opinion, then you can rest assured that following that particular opinion, you'll be reasonably safe. But uh, my advice to your listeners would be don't take a punt and don't just follow what George or... Sandra told you in the pub, because like you said earlier, not only is tax complicated, one size doesn't fit all. So the, the situation, the scenario for everybody will be different. Just because Fred in the pub or George in the pub said he did this, his personal situation could be very different to yours. So always seek advice before you do any form of tax planning and don't just follow blindly what somebody tells you in the pub or on Google. Okay, so... Previously, lots of people were using Entrepreneur's Relief to reduce their tax liability. Principally, Entrepreneur's Relief is, um, is at a rate of 10%, um, so it's very, very low. Uh, and it was designed for people who are selling their businesses. Um, you know, they can, they can get out of their business and, and pay only 10% tax. But lots of people were using it to liquidate companies uh, and then pay 10% on the distributions. Uh, I understand there's, um, there are some new rules around this, the targeted anti-avoidance rules, um, which have put quite a few people off, put quite a few accountants off. Is there any way to deal with this and still have the ability to 
reduce your tax liability when liquidating or, or shutting companies down? Again, that's a good question, Mark. And it's rather common for property developers to have an SPV where one particular project is looked after in that company. When those properties are, are sold or moved on, that SPV is liquidated. They then claim entrepreneur's relief and pay 10% tax. HMRC has picked up on this and like you've rightly pointed out, they've introduced the TAR, the Targeted Anti-Avoidance Rules. So you can't do that anymore because if you do that and then you set up a new SPV to do exactly the same thing with a different project, then the TAR rules will kick in. So the best thing to do is to have a holding company and then to have subsidiaries for your different projects. And once that project comes to an end, you can close down this subsidiary and move all the money up into the main holding company. What that means is you won't get hold of the cash personally, whereas you would do it in the previous situation by claiming entrepreneur's relief, but the money stays in the holding company and you can use that money to invest in future projects. So what you're effectively talking about is just paying the 20% corporation tax on the profit, but then you can transfer the dividends or, or any of the money, I suppose, via loan um, up through, you know, through from the subsidiary up to the sort of group company or the holding company. Absolutely. Um, free of any tax on dividends, as long as it stays within the company. That's right. Um, yeah, I like that. Um, it's certainly it's very good for those who have got a accumulation mindset. Uh, Warren Buffett would like um, that meant you know that that kind of process I think because um, for those of us who sort of prefer investing and making money than spending money personally, um, leave it in a company or, or you know have the ability to move it around companies into different projects and just pay twenty percent tax on it each year. Um, then um, you know, sort of worry about the how you're going to take it out of the company later on, maybe in later life. Uh, you know, when the um, when your profits reduce, uh, maybe at that point you start drawing more of it. Um, but um, yeah, I, I like that that process. What about um, those people who have got companies which are already owned by them personally? can you do some sort of share exchange so that you can change the shareholders in a limited company to another limited company? Is that possible? Absolutely, we can do that and uh, get clearance from, from HMRC. So we set up a new structure where you have a main holding company and that would then own shares in different subsidiaries. So the most common one is you, you have a holding company, which is company A, then you set up company B, which is the investment company, which holds all your properties. Then you'd have company C, which again, all the shares would, would be owned by the holding company. And company C is a construction company, which does all the work. And then you'd have company D, which is a development company, which is the SPV, which you would usually fold. And then came entrepreneurs reef, so you can fold that particular company and move all the money back into your holding company. I'd go one step further, and say have company E, which would be your management company, and you use that to extract money for your salary, dividends, for your for basically the work that you do for all four companies, and then take out the money tax efficiently after having spoken to your accountant or your tax advisor. Okay, so we, we've also been having a chat about VAT, and VAT on the purchase of properties. Um, 
and specifically around properties that are rented out. I think in your experience, you found that um, some of your customers purchase properties, there's VAT on them, they just pay the VAT. Um, and then of course they have to pay stamp duty on the purchase price and the VAT, uh, which seems a bit perverse, but that's the world we live in. Um, you've got some ideas for reducing that liability and improving improving the cash flow, Shaz. Absolutely. So uh, with the, the stamp duty, you're paying tax on tax because you've paid VAT on the purchase of a commercial property, and then you're paying the stamp duty on that element of the VAT. So if you if you buy a commercial property for five hundred thousand pounds, the VAT would be six hundred thousand pounds. The stamp duty you pay would be the, on the total figure of six hundred thousand pounds. If you have a sitting tenant in that particular property, the best thing to do is to use a transfer of going concern rules. And if you if you use the transfer of going concern concern rules, what then happens is you have to register for VAT, but you don't pay any VAT on the transaction. Now that gives you a cash flow advantage because in my example here, you would only pay £500,000 and you wouldn't have to pay the £100,000. If you had to pay the £100,000, you'd either have to go to a third party investor or you'd have to go to your bank for them to fund the 100000 for anywhere between four to six months. And if you have any issues and challenges with getting the VAT back, you'll have a big problem. I have seen in the past where the transaction hasn't been structured properly and the purchaser thought they could claim back the VAT, something's gone wrong and they haven't been able to. I'll give you an example. I had a chap who approached me. He was setting up a children's day nursery. There's no VAT in that particular business and he was also buying the property. So he bought the property, paid the VAT on it, and HMRC said, well, you can't claim back the VAT because the business that you're entering doesn't charge VAT for its services. And because you own that business and you own the building, you can't have the VAT back. So he was stuck with a very large liability. That's pretty painful, isn't it? So even though a separate entity owned the property to the one that was going to be operating the business, they wouldn't let him uh, claim the VAT back afterwards. Because it was a connected party, it was the same person That's who owned the building and who was running the business and because it was an exempt supply. There's no, there's no VAT on, on that sort of, on the receipts that go into that sort of business. That's right. Mm. Yeah, these are important points and clearly a good reason for speaking to your accountant before you enter into these um, these these purchases. It's important, I know from our experience, always to uh, to register for VAT in the entity that you're purchasing and to get the building opted to tax. So you need to fill the form out and tell HMRC that you want to purchase that building into an entity before before you actually do. Okay, so that's been really useful, Shaz. You've also got some ideas around pensions and how you can utilise the pension rules to reduce your tax liability. I know there's been some ch changes in the last few years. How can we still use pensions to invest in, in investment property? You can set up a SAS, so a small self-administered scheme if you're buying commercial property and then your main trading company can then make payments into the SAS and the SAS then uh, owns the commercial property. So that's one way of doing it. The other alternative is to have to have a SIP, 
But what's really important, Mark, is that you can pay in £40,000 into a pension pot. Most invest, property investors perhaps don't think about this, and, and it's, it's very important that they do, because you get tax relief, so, so you pay less tax on your profits in your main trading company, you've paid the £40,000 into your pension, and you can draw down on that at some point in the future, and if you've got any unused allowance from the last three years, you can carry that forward and you can utilise that. So for a small property investor who has £80,000 in, in profits for a particular year, who has some unused allowances from the last three years, could pay £80,000 in that particular year and pay no tax. So you can, you can go backwards, you can use previous year's uh, tax liability and then sort of roll it all up and, and pay that into your pension. Sorry, yeah, so so if you haven't utilised the, the £40,000 pension allowance from the last three years, you can carry that forward and use that and then make a larger payment in, the particular, in, the, in this current year and pay no tax. The only disadvantage, if I can call it that, would be that you have a, you, you, you'll have a lack of cash flow because you have to pay the money out, but you won't pay tax. And then what happens in terms of um, investing that money? You, you can buy commercial property with it. Can you, can you buy any residential or is it, are you just limited to commercial? You're limited to commercial, although if you have a, uh, have a particular portfolio which can be presented as a commercial opportunity, then you could do. Something else which you could do is, if your SAS has cash in it, it can loan that money to a third party and the third party can make investments. And the third party can do what it likes as long as there's a loan uh, agreement from the SAS to the third party saying you, you can use this money for up to 10 years, you'll have to pay interest and you'll have to repay the money within 10 years, but the third party company can invest that money into residential property. That gets a little bit complicated, but it's possible. Okay, that's quite interesting, but I suppose, can that be one of your companies or does it have to be a, you know, a sort of unconnected? It can be one of your companies. But I, I suppose there's some sort of security and things like that that the pension has to take. As long as there's a formal loan agreement, yeah, you're okay. And whoever's administering the pension for you, you run it by them and say this is a, a proper loan, it should be fine. Interesting stuff, Shaz. So um, we're coming to the end of the podcast now. Is there, is there anything else you want to add, little ideas, tips, tricks? that people can utilise to, to, to control their tax liability? A popular question which I'm asked is, when somebody buys commercial property, they then apply for planning to refurbish that into residential properties, they'll pay 5% VAT. At the end, they're looking to hold on to the portfolio as opposed to selling it, because if you sell it, you're fine. You, you can claim back the 5%. So that's Five percent on the refurbishment or conversion works, which will be done on the property to convert it to a residential building. Absolutely. Yeah. But if you hold on to the portfolio, then you can't claim the five percent back, and that can be a pretty large number because you'll know better than I do, Mark. When it comes to commercial conversions, the numbers are usually bigger, like three hundred thousand going upwards. What you could do is, if you, if you intend to hold on to the property, set up a subsidiary 
So the holding company, which would which owns the project, would own the shares in the subsidiary. You grant a, a lease which is longer than 21 years, and as long as you do that, there's no stamp duty to pay on the lease. Lease which is longer than 21 years. Usually, if you have a lease longer than seven years, you have to pay stamp duty. In this instance, because it's a parent and a subsidiary, there's no stamp duty and you can claim back all the VAT, which is the 5%. That's quite interesting. So how would you deal with the, the, the refinance and the, and the bank and that sort of stuff? Would you be refinancing it in the subsidiary or in the parent company? You'd be refinancing in the parent company because it's the parent company which holds the asset. It's just granting a lease which is longer than 21 years to so you might subsidiary. do a twenty-two year lease to the subsidiary, and then then you don't have to pay the. Um, and then, when the subsidiary is it the subsidiary that then rents the building out? That's right. Yeah. And then then in your lease you could have a clause where it, it can sublet, and then that can then sublet to third parties. Ah, so the yeah, and there's a an added benefit there as well, isn't there? Because if there's some sort of issue with a tenant or major claim that they have against your property company, I don't know, something happens or whatever, if the lease is in the name of a subsidiary, your main company that owns the building is in some way shielded, isn't it? See, this is why I like you so much, Mark. You're always one step ahead. So you're absolutely right. And uh, any liability with the subtenant would be limited to the subsidiary as opposed to the parent company. If anything goes wrong, horribly wrong, that company, if it had to fold for any reason, the holding company, which is the parent company, stays intact. Shaz, it's been a pleasure. I've certainly learned quite a lot in the podcast as well. Um, how do people get hold of you if they want to talk to you further and um, use your services? They can go onto my website, which is www.aa-com accountants.co.uk or they can call my office on 017-33-555-667 or if they prefer they can email me on shaz at accountantscouk Shaz, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for coming along and, and talking to us today. This has been Mark Homer for Mark My Words. <laughs> <laughs>